Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Irwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, a blistering wave of heat had settled over our space family's campsite, along with a strange, unearthly silence. Well, one thing, once we get this water conversion unit insulated, we won't have to worry about evaporation. Do you hear anything? Welcome back, folks, for Episode 9 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the ninth broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Oasis. Uh, To me, this episode is sort of schizophrenic. The first half really drew me in, but the second part, not so much. How did that alien papaya from The Oasis taste to you? Uh, Well, I kind of felt the opposite. I I like the second half better than the first half, oddly enough, but... You know, there were things I thought were pretty interesting about the first half, too. All right. Well, we'll get into that as we start talking about it. But before we do that, let's uh, go over a few quick production notes. The writer for the script is Peter Packer. We remember that the British-born Packer was the uh, most prolific screenwriter for Lost in Space with 25 episode credits. This episode bucks the Gilligan's Island format, as you termed it, where we have a visitor coming in to provide the plot points for the Robinson family. And it kind of returns to that original Swiss family Robinson premise where the castaways are trying to struggle to survive in a hostile environment. Of course, in this case, those challenging conditions are exacerbated by the misdeeds and missteps of Dr. Smith. Yeah, he's uh, he certainly crosses the threshold of good taste this time and <laughs> literally, you know, tastes the, the forbidden fruit. He does indeed. The director is a guy named 
Sutton Raleigh, who was 43 at the time that this was filmed. The film dates for this episode were from the 8th to the 18th of October, 1965. It took a little over six days to film, but it didn't get him in too much trouble with Irwin Allen because he would go on to direct four episodes of Lost in Space and three episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. The episode aired on Wednesday night, November 10th, 1965, and there were no summer repeats. All the characters were featured in this episode, and we'd have a guest star of sorts playing the giant Debbie was veteran, quote, ape actor Janos Prahashka, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who had a career in TV during this time frame, creating and performing ape and monster costumes. He had a lot of credits as apes, gorillas, and other creatures in a lot of these shows. Uh, Gilligan's Island, uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Land of the Giants. He played several roles for Star Trek, including the famous role of the Horta in the episode that was titled The Devil in the Dark, among others. Well, you know, when he wasn't doing this, you could always see him perform on the street corner with an organ grinder. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's very convincing, I thought. I thought that was uh, pretty good. But you might be interested to know that he played a character called Darwin the Monkey in a famous episode of The Outer Limits. Now, hold on. Uh, fact check me on this. I think it was titled The Sixth Finger. Is that a a good check on that? I know. It was called The Middle Finger. (laughs) It was the six finger. Yeah. Well, I want to double check because unlike the failing New York Times, we don't bury our mistakes on the sixth page here. I'm gonna uh-huh. I'm gonna fess up and say last week I mentioned a couple of episodes of Outer Limits that the director Leonard Horn was credited with, but I did misquote the titles of those episodes and you being the resident Outer Limits expert quickly set me straight. I wouldn't call myself an expert, just more familiar than you. It was called uh, The Man Who Was Never Born. Yeah. You had me second guess, though, when you said it was taken right off I, uh, Internet uh, Movie Database. But it was, in fact, called The Man Who Was Never Born. And then the other one that you actually butchered a little bit but I didn't catch was the one where it was the uh, Children of Spider County instead of, uh, you called it country, but it was uh, Children of Spider County. Yeah. And uh, that one had a great mask, but it wasn't one of the you know stellar episodes. But certainly The Man Who Was Never Born and The uh, Zanti Misfits were both uh, some of the best Outer Limits. You know, it's funny. A lot of these shows have what I call the rule of thirds. You know, I mean, maybe this is just me, but it seems like a lot of these vintage television shows, the science fiction shows, have a third of the episodes really, really good. And then a third of the episodes you know, good, mm. but average, and then a third of them kind of sucky, mm. you know, and that, that even applies to the Twilight Zone. Uh, right. It was like, you know, when you really, we all tend to kind of rom- romanticize the Twilight Zone to where it's like, oh, it's all so great. But no, there were there was about a third of those episodes that really are, you know, hard to watch. And, but the other two thirds of them are very pleasant to watch, and one third of them are just phenomenal to watch. And that's how The Outer Limits was very much so. And, you know, I don't know where Lost in Space sits in this. Some people might say you could just chalk up the second season as being the, the, the less pleasant of them. But I seem to recall that it's been a very fun season 
but it didn't have the strong science fiction element that the other did. And certainly the first season was the third se- the, the the season that was the phenomenal season. And then the last season, they take off again, and things get very interesting in the science fiction uh, side of things. Well, one thing I am noticing is that it seems like there's a lot of veterans from The Outer Limits that show up here, either writing scripts or directors. So that's kind of a, kind of a neat connection. So last week, I'm glad you called me on that because I was getting ready to send that hate letter to to IMBD, but it turns out I was wrong on both counts. Not only did I mispronounce or misstate the titles, but I also miscopied them in. So folks, send your hate mail to me and thank you for the correction. Yeah, I, I, I actually envy, you know, people like you who are not so familiar with Outer Limits because you get to look forward to, to watching them, you know, which is kind of fun for me because I, I also remember Outer Limits, I mean, Lost in Space, not as well as Outer Limits. So that's why this is so fun for me because even though I've seen a lot of episodes, I don't remember them. So I get to kind of enjoy seeing it again. It sort of reminds me of my mother. She said, you know, one of the nice things about getting older is you forget so much. You're able to reread some of your favorite books and enjoy them for the first time again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we all have that to look forward to, I guess. Oh, yeah. All right. So getting uh, this episode, The Oasis, Act One, we open, as always, with the narrator catching us up. Don and Judy are outside working on a large piece of equipment that looks familiar, but we find out later it's a water conversion unit. Don pauses to ask if Judy hears anything, but it's dead silent, and that's the eerie silence before a planet quake hits. Yeah, it's all right. Do you, do you hear anything? No, nothing except for boating music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the music is giving the tell right there. But by the way, I thought that was a terrible location for that unit to be. I mean, it's right next to this large, ubiquitous rock formation. But not only is it a large rock formation, but it's one with a giant uh, loose boulder sitting on top of it. Where do you think we should plant this thing, Don? <laughs> well, I don't know. There's a big loose boulder up there. Why don't we just plant it right underneath that? <laughs> Yeah, I think maybe that the reason that boulder was there is like the Cyclops is holding it above his head, waiting for the Robinsons to appear, and they didn't. So he says, well, I'll just set it down here, you know, so it'll be convenient when they do show up. Well, that quake hits, and it's uh, complete with some nice stock footage of a rock slide down a mountainside. And uh, we cut to the family on the lower deck of the Jupiter 2 getting ready for lunch. And when that quake hits, of course, it shakes everybody up. John's immediately concerned. Where's Judy? No mention of Don, but... uh... (laughs) Yeah, did you notice that that Zachary Smith actually says, it's a quake. He doesn't say earthquake, he says it's a quake. I guess he was listening to our podcast and decided, you know, because he's in the know. But uh, later on, they they go back to calling it earthquakes again. Yeah, they can't help themselves, can they? So the parents race upstairs to check on uh, Don and Judy. Before they get there, Don manages to push Judy out of the way just as that boulder topples off and falls down and pins Don's foot in between a couple of other rocks. And then uh, we're left in in a dilemma there as they go off to credits. It's a nice tight opening. It's less than two minutes long. And when we come back from credits, we see that the dust is set and Don is out cold and John manages to revive Don who wakes up in agony and I was sitting there thinking you could have left me knocked out right now because this yeah <laughs> you know, like, I need to wake him up with from anesthesia so that I can administer the anesthesia <laughs> I did think Mark Goddard's uh, performance was pretty convincing he really was selling that he was in agony and the funny yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is that the girls are just standing there by the door watching on helplessly and Don says I'm gonna go get a lever and he runs yeah just sort of like dude what about the robot that can live 50 tons you know come on but for some reason they have this large steel pole and it's not even a pipe it's a solid 
solid steel pole inside the Jupiter 2. I'm not sure what they have that for, but he runs in and grabs it. And and uh, Don's going, hurry, hurry. It's like, yeah, I think I'll saunter over there. But <laughs> did that strike yeah. you as funny? <laughs> oh, I just thought it was a space ballast. <laughs> <laughs> they probably have a hole at the bottom of it. The, they probably took that off the space pod. You know, I kept saying, we don't see the space pod until episode three. Obviously, I meant season three. You've got this giant space pod contraption at the bottom of the Jupiter 2, and nobody seems to notice this thing. So who knows what's, what's floating around down there. If they can ignore that for three, two seasons straight, uh, there's probably all sorts of things rolling around down there. Yeah, well, they seem to always have the right piece of equipment for the right job. So he grabs that lever and he starts trying to, to, to wedge that stone away so that Don can slip his foot out. And he finally does. He uh, He's relieved and everyone's relieved. But just at that moment, we see Smith emerge from the ship. He's always late to the dance, isn't he? Uh, yeah. Especially when there's a chance he might have to exert himself. And I love this because you watch him come out and he's sort of taking in the scene. And then his face turns from like curiosity to almost suspicion as if to say, now what have they done? <laughs> Yeah, but he does offer to help, you know, and it looked like it was kind of sincere. And in a way, he gets sort of swatted down because John says, yeah, you can grab his boot. <laughs> Bring a smelly boot. You're good at that. Well, he picks it up, and that's pretty funny, too. He picks it up and looks at it for a second, and then he drops it with disgust. And then to add insult to injury, everybody else is running back in to take Don downstairs to see what they can do to patch him up. They close the hatch on Dr. Smith before he can get inside. So the comedy is already starting here. Yeah. Yeah, he, he gave that boot the same treatment he gave the soil sample in the earlier episode. You know, he just kind of gives it with the little T fingers raised up in the air like he can't stand that even touch this thing. Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty funny. It was pretty funny. So next we get another of John Robinson's Dear Diary moments, and he's explaining that the sun is back up to its old tricks. The orbit is shifting, and the the land is withering under extreme heat, and it's a rise of temperatures. And I actually forgot about this, because earlier, I think when we were talking about the Hungry Sea, I had said, well, this plot device never returns again. But at least the heat side of it, if not the cold side, is returned here. So that's explaining further elements that's going to come up. Yeah, I love that. Dear Diary, I'm still calling all quakes earthquakes because I'm that homesick. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, whenever he's wearing that white T-shirt, you know, it always is sort of this feigned casual. But in this case, they have a a reason for it because it's very, very hot. And they're not going to show the men in their bare you know, topless or anything like that. And the women wandering around in brassieres. No, uh, but the men do get to wear white T-shirts in this episode. That's about as sexy as we're going to get on this show. Yeah. So he finishes with his diary, and he he pops that away, and the little space-age folding-down desk pops back up, and he walks in, and Will asks him, that's the temperature. Oh, it's all the way down to 145 (laughs) degrees. (laughs) I thought he said 147, or maybe they said it was down from 147 yes. to 145. That's pretty intense. I mean, yeah, uh, it went down two degrees, and Judy even says, "Well, what's the difference? Just 147, yeah. 145." So they're they're not only staying inside the ship, they're all the way down on the the lower level, which kind of makes sense. I appreciated the fact that they they did that. But did you did you catch the name of the game that the kids are playing there? What, was it Big Dipper? No, that was the name of one of the pieces. It's actually, if you look real closely, and I only know this because I paused the thing, it's it's not Monopoly, it's Interstellar Monopoly. And, <laughs> and in the... I, 
tell me somebody has redone that. I mean, I can't. I mean, they've got all these Star Wars Monopoly and all this other stuff. Certainly, someone's done an interstellar version of that. No, I don't know. I think they just made that up because uh, Irwin didn't want to ha- take a chance on having to pay any uh, royalties to Parker Brothers Games for the Monopoly. <laughs> Monopoly they should pay name. him for it. Pay him to license that name and do a version of it. I buy it. Yeah. Well, uh, Penny's making a move, and John sort of sort of gives her a little uh, coaching there and says, "Oh, you'll lose the Big Dipper there if you uh, make that." Move. Well, Penny, make that move. You lose the Big Dipper. That's no fair, telling her what to do. You didn't have to tell me. I knew it myself. I'll bet. Well, it was on my mind. <laughs> Okay, kids, stop arguing and let's get on with the game. By rights, that Big Dipper belongs to me. Does not, Will. I'm not going to play with a bunch of cheaters. Oh. oh, now, come on. Now, stop this bickering. John, do you think it would be all right if we made an exception and gave them their water ration now? Sure. Yeah, that was very realistic. That's exactly how the little kids do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't tell her that's cheating. Oh, come on. And then... I think the mother does something that's sort of forgiving, too. Oh, she decides that they can have their little allotment of water early. That's her version of tough love, I, a tough love, I guess. Yeah. And so they, they pass out these little thimbles of water. <laughs> you know, don't gulp it. Don't gulp it. How are you going to gulp that? I mean, it's a tiny little, it looks like a pill uh, container. You know, it's just. Oh, it's it's there very. Can't be it's more like, than an ounce. It's not even a shot glass, like you said. It's almost thimble size. This is something I noticed throughout the episode. Maureen is going to have to stop at every stage and ask John, "Do you mind if I give them their water ration early, dear?" I guess so. <laughs> Go ahead. You know. <laughs> <laughs> If that's not going to establish him as the guy in charge, he's literally the one who tells you when you could drink. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's come a long way from the days when he needed the computer to make the command decisions, I guess. Huh? Yeah. Dad, can I swallow now? No, not yet. <laughs> okay, now you may. <laughs> so back outside, John joins Don by that conversion unit, and we have another issue that's cropped up. It's the fuel cells that power the unit. They're starting to fail, and they're not making enough water to survive. In fact, they're down to their very last cell. And this is sort of like the old plot device of Chekhov's gun. You know, it's like uh, if you go to the trouble of pointing out this uh, device or object, you know that it's foreshadowing trouble ahead. And in this case, the, the fuel cells are going to come back to haunt us later. So John asks, well, how much water do we have in the storage tank? 24 gallons. Well, that's about a 14-day supply, he says. Hopefully this peak heat won't stay forever. And We better check it, though. You know, evaporation could occur. And let's just see if we've got the full 24. Okay, at this point, all my alarm bells are going <laughs> off. I'm thinking... Smith, 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 (laughs) Smith. (laughs) If we go to the trouble of checking it, we know something bad is going to happen. So they and of course Zachary does not disappoint. Oh no, this is this is one of my favorite parts of the first half. So they they, he it's like he's checking the oil. He's got the old dipstick in there, and he pulls it out, and he pauses, and he's got this concerned look, and he asks Don, he goes, "Or how much water did you say we have in there? Twenty-four. Twenty-four. Yeah. Well." Now we only have two gallons, and we that all can't be. Yeah, we all smell the rat, and uh, now Don immediately smells a rat named Smith, and he asks, "Where's the spigot? Oh, it's locked up in my cabin." And then 
I don't know if you noticed this, but I love the way the shot was framed here because you can see in the background there, it's a close up more or less or a medium shot on John and Don. And in the background, we see the top of the robot. He's almost like up on a platform. We don't hear anything yet, but it's just there. It's like, it's like beckoning us. What's going on with the robot out there? And then at that very the moment, music. <laughs> the singing. <laughs> I would have kicked you clear into orbit for taking a shower at a time like this. I couldn't wait another day. I was losing precious body fluids besides feeling very icky. How much is left in the tank? He got it all. There wasn't much to begin with, and my hair is still soaking. I hope it falls out in bunches. That remark was uncalled for, Major. Don't you realize what you've done? You've washed your grubby hide in what is practically the last of our drinking water. How did you get it out of the tank? Did you steal the spigot? I did not. I used suction. Well, that figures. How about I tell you to sneak gas out of cars when you were a teenager? I was never a teenager in your sense of the word. Well, I hope not, because I'd owe all of them an apology if you were. Look here now. Now, just a minute. Get your clothes on. I want everyone present at the ship in a meeting in five minutes. Shut up. That does not compute. Yeah, see now, the, even though I, I was able to predict Smith was behind this. Even I was, and you know, I kind of pride myself in being able to predict a lot of things that are going to happen in stories because, you know, when you write stories, you often think of the same sort of things. But I was completely blown away when I saw what Smith was up to. It, I thought they were going to just like have a drinking contest or something, but no, it's even better than that. <laughs> He's actually taking a shower with the water, the, the, their precious water supply. And to, to add insult to injury, he and the robot are singing opera from like, uh, the Barber of Seville or something like that. And Piccolo, Piccolo, Piccolo. <laughs> and, and of course, Smith is all lathered up, you know, with shampoo and everything, so no one can even drink the, the water that's been spilled over him, you know. Oh, it's so, oh God, it's so beautiful. Now, of course, you and I, it sounds like we have this similar reaction to this. My wife, when she saw that, she just got so infuriated. She was like, this is so awful i can't believe they don't just kill him right now and i know it's it's lowbrow comedy but i just can't help but laugh out loud every time i see it did it go too far for you oh no i i, I thought it was great especially when they say you know what what the hell are you do why did you do this and he says i felt icky <laughs> <laughs> my bodily fluids were completely dehydrated sir <laughs> It, it does. It's it's really good. But, you know, Smith Smith is completely shameless. He never gives the impression that he thinks he did anything wrong. He was entitled to that water from the from start to finish. So, all well, right. Well, he was icky. I mean, come on. I can relate to that. You know, you're icky. It was icky. Mm. Well. And for Don, Don seemed like he was really holding back. I mean, he was saying, you know, you could tell he was gritting his teeth and everything. But if any time, you know. He hit Hapgood over the fact that Hapgood was just a little rude to John. He was totally justified at this point to just grab Smith by the throat and start choking him, and he didn't. Yeah, he definitely looks like he could kill him right there, but he somehow manages to restrain himself. So 
I'll, I'll never understand why. But anyway, we go back on the lower deck of the Jupiter 2, and John has got a little family meeting that he's called. He's explaining to them that now they're they're down to basically medicinal doses of water, and they have to start searching for a new supply and fast, or they're all going to basically die. And I like the framing of this shot. Smith is sort of in the foreground. He's la- he's in one of those space lazy boy chairs in the foreground, and the and the rest of the family's behind him, or you know, gathered around the table. And, Smith- and like you say, he's totally unapologetic i mean you would think after what happened he would at least be involved you know gee i'm really sorry but he's literally got his back turned to the family and he's looking at us and he's almost like he's looking at his fingernails he's totally unconcerned you know (laughs) he's practically napping it's just all such a bother john pulls a map out and he he says well maybe we maybe we can follow this dried up stream bed and they might be able to locate the underground spring that was the source of that and at that point smith chimes in oh splendid idea i'm surprised we didn't think of it sooner john points out we can only search during the day that's the downside and I, i didn't quite understand why that is i mean you know, yeah, and then he and, flashlights, and then he makes the comment, which could be dangerous. Uh, you think <laughs> it's 145 <laughs> degrees out? We're going to be tromping around the desert and in the daylight. Yeah, I, th- I would say that's pretty dangerous. But the next line is a classic Smith when he says something like, "I'm sure you'll find it. I'll be rooting for you." Yeah, where are you going? Uh, Smith literally gets up and starts to leave, and he says, "To my cabin to start rooting." Yeah, John <laughs> chimes in, "Oh, you'll join us on the search with a bucket in both hands," which he does. So that ends the first act. We start the next act. We see the whole gang walking through that familiar sandy desert terrain. And Smith, you notice, has the largest buckets of all. I guess that's his punishment. But he's getting tuckered out. And it's no wonder. He's the only one wearing that complete velour space suit with the, <laughs> complete with the turtleneck sweater and everything else. Everybody else at least has stripped down to the undershirts, as you notice. And no hats. Did you notice that? Well, you know, uh, Zachary has got style, if nothing else. He's not going to wear a T-shirt around the, the ship. It's always going to be, uh, if he had a tuxedo, he'd probably be wearing that. <laughs> well, he's exhausted, and he can't take another step, so he sits on one of those buckets. Good thing he had the large size. And Will, try, Will tries to console him for dropping out of formation by saying, I guess you're too old for this sort of hike. <laughs> Old? You know, age has nothing to do with it. You know, he contests and basically says he's still young. But did you notice that before that, we see Debbie, uh, you know, wobbling along, and, and Penny says, Poor Debbie, she's thirsty. And then I think it's the mother, or yeah, I don't know if it's, it's John, Maureen. Maureen says, Yeah, she'll have to wait for her allotment just like the rest of us. You know, I felt like, you know, geez. It's not enough that you guys pull all her teeth out of her mouth. You know, now you're not even going to let her drink? (laughs) Where's the SPCA when you need it? Well, they're not there, that's for sure. Poor Debbie, you do feel sorry for her. It's kind of funny that she has to be out there with them. Couldn't they have left her back at least in the shade? She's not going to help. Well, well, we find out what the purpose of that is later on, but uh, yeah. it wasn't. It didn't make a whole lot of sense from the standpoint of being nice to the poor chimp. It didn't. But, you know, so Dr. Smith says he can't take another step, and, and they tell him, well, well, rest for a while and make your way back to camp. And Maureen, Maureen's not too concerned with Debbie, but she does ask, again, permission from John if she can give Dr. Smith his water ration. And he gets that one little thumb thimble full of of water and then he asks could i have another oh dr smith (laughs) 
He was properly chastised. He, she couldn't believe he was asking for another drink of water. But uh, they tell him to meet them back at camp, and Don lets him know that what little water they have left is well hidden. So don't uh, don't think about you know siphoning off any more of the water that they have left. So I was a little disappointed we didn't get to see him digging through everything back at the the ship. But you know maybe he did that in secret mm. when the camera crew wasn't around. Yeah. Who knows? Next, the castaways are back at that familiar backlot location, the moat. And uh, that lagoon we saw a couple episodes ago in the Mr. Nobody episode is all but gone. All that remains is this tiny little pool or an oasis, if you will. John tastes the water, but uh, it's contaminated. He says, you know, you need a giant distilling plant to get any usable water out of it. But just at that moment, miraculously, I mean, it's a good thing they were there to watch this. The fruit starts rising to the surface. Yeah, it was almost like somebody was letting it go. You know, maybe Mr. Nobody wasn't completely gone after all. It just miraculously appears floating up in the bottom. Now, I don't know how fruit grows at the bottom of the <laughs> of the well. I mean, these definitely look like uh, you know, some sort of uh Well, I think papaya. they were Yeah, I think they were papayas. That's what they looked like to me cuz they cut them open and they got all those seeds like a papaya, but I I'm not yeah. quite sure, but uh You can't tell the color, obviously. It's black and white. But, right. Yeah. Right. I think but, it was papaya. But they're but they're happy about it cuz at least this could, you know, get them through until the drought ends. But of course, John cautions uh, for the first time and it won't be the last. Don't eat any of it until it's been tested, folks. But unfortunately, Penny isn't watching little Debbie and now we know why she was brought along because she it's not little Debbie the snack cake queen. It's little the other little Debbie. She's off by herself gobbling down some of that fruit. And the music here tells us this isn't going to be without consequences, folks, because it gets very ominous. Yeah, nobody seems to notice her eating it, but later on they, they knew that she had eaten it. So right. maybe they saw the seeds in between her non-existent teeth <laughs> <laughs> when we get back to the jupiter 2 the family's gathered around the lab where john's running some tests on that fruit and it's so far so good but john warns them once again do not eat that fruit did you get that folks that fruit is not safe for human consumption until yeah, they're gonna need to test it uh, 24 to 36 hours that's a pretty wide margin isn't it <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. In addition to Chekhov's fuel cell, we now have Chekhov's papaya. So, uh, oh well. So they're going to run some tests on it. And suddenly, Maureen remembers, wait a minute, Dr. Smith should have beaten us back here. So she goes to his cabin to check on him. And surprise, surprise, he's not there. Where could he be? Well, if you've got any water sitting around or maybe <laughs> forbidden fruit, you better check on it. Uh, so once again, Maureen has to ask permission. John, do you think I should go up? Could I possibly go upstairs and check and see if Dr. Smith's up there? And so, oh, of course, go up there and check. And she does. And and you, you notice, you're not going to skip over this, are you? The handheld shot as she goes up the elevator. Yes. Wasn't that something? That, I think it's pro- I don't remember ever seeing this before, and I doubt we see it again. But the camera is kind of over her shoulder, and it's handheld, and she's going up the elevator, and then it fades to black, and then it fades from from black as she comes up to the second floor. Now, it was a little jarring for me to see it go to black because, you know, what is this, a giant tunnel? I mean, why would it be black? But, you know, obviously they had to go from one set to another. And it was a cool shot, though, because now you're getting sort of a little uh, uh, visual validation of the 
the under uh, the the first floor being beneath the second floor and all the rest of it. And it was it was a cool shot. Oh, it really was. And uh, I thought it was really good, and especially when you know that both of those sets, the lower deck and the upper deck, were actually on two separate sound stages. So that shot really sold that whole idea that we're in we're inside the Jupiter two spaceship. And the the yeah, it does go to black. I guess that's just basically when they're passing through the the level the deck level or whatever. But it's so seamless. But the other part of that shot that I like when she does emerge on the upper deck you can look over her shoulder out the front window and you can see dr smith outside there by the table and she starts screaming right away and say dr smith dr smith no no because he's got a handful of that fruit and he's just gorging himself dr smith dr smith don't eat it dr You didn't have to do that. There's plenty more. How many of these have you eaten? It was only my second. And I must say it's delicious, a very exotic flavor. Now, you needn't worry. There's plenty for everyone. Just don't worry at all about it. But you don't understand. This fruit hasn't been tested. It might be... Maybe what? Tell me. Poisonous. Oh, why couldn't you have waited? Poison? Did you say... Poison. What's going on now? He's been eating this fruit. Don't you ever pay attention to rules? It was lying right here on this table. I was hungry and thirsty. How was I to know that you... You. You left it there deliberately. You wanted me to eat it. Why, that's ridiculous, Smith. We just found that fruit. If you hadn't left us, you'd have known that. You took advantage of the way I felt to plant them there. You knew they'd be the first thing I'd see. That's not true. This is your revenge on me for using your drinking water to take a shower? That's crazy, Smith. Is it? I know how you all feel about me. Another mouth to feed, another thirst to quench. Oh, yes, let's get rid of him. This is our chance. That's the way your evil minds worked, wasn't it? No! It's begun. I can feel it. It's churning in my blood. All right, we'll get you out. Oh, stay away from me! Oh, leave me alone! John, isn't there something we can give him to neutralize it? Maybe. If we knew exactly what it was we wanted to neutralize. Until I can get a reading on that culture, I wouldn't know what to try on him. Now, all we can do now is wait for some recognizable symptoms to appear. And uh, the line that I remember the most, it was like, that's how your evil minds work. You're getting even for me uh, because I drank the water. So, you know, it's... uh, uh, June is, of course, horrified by this because, you know, she would never even think such a thing, let alone do it. But, you know, that Smith is convinced. Oh, yeah. He's convinced they left. He says something like, you left. You knew I would see that fruit. You left it out here deliberately to trick me into eating it. So he's he's turned this whole situation around. Once again, Dr. Smith, who's broken the rules, and John even chastised, don't you ever follow the rules? He's turned it completely around where he's not the transgressor. He's the victim. And he really believes it. I mean, he's totally convinced that he's been tricked into eating this fruit. And he even sort of start, he grabs his stomach. Oh, <gasps> It's begun. It's churning. And I think that, you know, what's sort of uh, unusual about this is somewhere in our subconscious, we all really know why Smith believes this, don't we? It's because that's what he would have done if the shoe were on the other foot. He would have left the fruit out for them to eat. 
That's how his evil mind works. So, yeah, that's why he would think this. Are you that's saying exactly, it's a little projection there? Yeah, I think that that's, you know, this is that this is exactly what he would have done in similar circumstances. So he assumes if the shoe's on the other foot, that's what they're doing to him. I, I think that's a great point. The other thing that I noticed about this whole scene was, and a I like the fact that they did this where it was at night, because even though there's a little bit of humor in the way that Jonathan Harris is playing his part, once he think, starts thinking that he's been poisoned, you know, he's 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 really kind of hamming it up just a little bit there. We that that nighttime atmosphere adds to the sense that there really is danger for him. He might actually be poisoned. So I thought that part of it was good. And they're trying to help him say, look, that we're, you know, we'll, we'll help you. And he runs screaming off back to the ship. And when they cut back to him, he's alone in his cabin. He's wallowing in self-pity. And he starts going through this whole self-examination thing. You know, oh, my tongue is coated. My eyes are bloodshot. With his stethoscope. Yeah. He's got his stethoscope there. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and we actually hear his heartbeat. Did yes. you Oh, yes, that? Yes. And this is another one of those over-the-shoulder uh, handheld shots, or at least it's not using a, a standard tripod or whatever. It's kind of a shaky shot, and you're seeing over his shoulder in the mirror, and you even see his shadow on the wall. So they went through quite a lot to get this shot right. Yeah, and it's a very confined space, but it's, it's, it's very good. You get this whole sense that, you know, he's alone. He's he's wallowing in self pity. Yes, he's, idiot dote. Yeah. How could I let this happen? So Caught much. like a mouse with a piece of poison cheese. Well, they'll pay for this with their lives. Well, yes, <laughs> it it changes because he goes from saying so much to live for, and then all of a sudden he has a moment of realization. He goes, "Oh, I won't die alone." Oh no, and his his expression changes as we go to commercial from pitiful to determined, and we can only imagine what he's planning. Yeah, and it is it is scary because you know what he's capable of. I mean, you know, he, he plotted to kill the family just you know, seven episodes ago. So he's back. He's back. And so when we do come back from commercial, we're back outside. The family's all sort of sitting outside in the night talking about Smith. And Maureen comes out and, and uh, Will comments, you know, well, at least he's not moaning anymore. And she comes out and informs the group that he's disappeared yet again. Someone says it, you know, he must have been so frightened that he just went away to die. So they decide to form up in pairs and go out into the night searching for Smith. Now, I've got a question for you about this. Did you notice how they were paired off? There was Maureen and John, Don and Judy, and Will and Penny. Now, why wouldn't they split the kids up on this dangerous planet at night? That made no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah, it's like I said, it's the Scooby-Doo formula, you know, you're always going to put Shaggy with Scooby, the two cowards together, you know, and they're always going to be the ones who find the monster. Well, yeah. So it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And I, and I was actually, I was actually expecting to see them, you know, come across a monster or something, but we don't get that. Instead, yeah, I mean, you, you, you would think it'd be John and Will. Right. And it would be June and Penny. I mean, come on. Okay, if you're going to allow Don and Judy to go off, it's one thing, but I mean, come on. You know, yeah, yeah. I, Give I, some I, supervision to the little kids, please. Yeah. Well, that's that seems to be a trend on this show. The kids are uh, they're 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 old enough to go out foraging on their own, but it doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, they don't have any luck finding Doctor Smith, and it's funny. We're starting to see a whole change in the attitude of everybody else. They're starting to blame themselves. Maureen is particularly feeling guilty. They give up on searching for Doctor Smith, and they return to the Jupiter Two. And when they're back at the ship, they start to discuss what could have happened to Smith. And John says, "Well." He's looking through his cabin. He says, well, he took some supplies. That's a good sign. And Judy is really feeling guilty. Well, apparently he was well enough to take a few things with him before he left. 
Like what? Shoulder pack, shaving articles. That's a good sign. But he had no water. How will he stay alive? Well, it's still possible the fruit gave him no more than a bad stomachache. When that wears off and he gets thirsty enough, he'll be back. But what if it really poisoned him? And he's sure we did it deliberately. Look, Judy, we can't help what he thinks. Now, he knew as well as we do that we're not supposed to eat anything we find on this planet until it's been thoroughly tested. But we did leave it lying around. That's why he must have thought it was safe to eat. Judy, I'm sure you wouldn't have eaten anything without finding out if we're safe or not. I don't know. Perhaps if I felt the way Dr. Smith did, dehydrated and everything, I might have. No, Judy, you wouldn't have touched it. Now, you've had plenty of training in interplanetary travel like the rest of us. As for Smith, he's a doctor, and he's had much more experience than you have. Now, we're going to do everything we can to find him and help him. But let's not fix the blame on something we have no control over, the drought. Don, hmm? let's check that culture. You wouldn't have eaten it. You've been trained, and Smith's a doctor. He should have known better. Well, uh, June has these... It's almost like a show-stopping, what do you call it, when you're on the couch and you're going through some sort of therapy. She says, you know, I, I read somewhere that people like Dr. Smith, call, they're called injustice collectors, and most of them are really nice when they're not collecting, mm. you know. And it's sort of like, well, you know, the sympathy's kind of coming on uh, heavy and thick here. Yeah, I mean, but, it gets it gets a little ridiculous. There, for example, at one point, uh, Penny and Will are over standing by the robot, and Penny asks, "Well, I wonder why he didn't take the robot with him. Usually, he does that." And so Will flips on the uh, robot's power switch, and the robot starts going into this this routine. Mm, Doctor Smith wants to go back to Earth. It's back to that old comedic uh, Dick mm-hmm. Tufeld version, and he turns him off. Well, it's an old tape, and then and then Will says something I thought was kind of funny. He says, "Well, the Doctor Smith was a whiz at getting the robot to do things." He, even if some of those things were bad. Oh, you mean like trying to kill everyone? <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant like being a scarecrow, uh, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't mind if the robot did a few bad things as long as Dr. Smith came back. Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a, I mean, it's a, it's a threshold moment for Smith because now he's basically becoming an honorary member of the family. It's true. Now, it's true. What's so funny about it is that while they're basically here accepting him now and basically, you know, giving him these heartfelt eulogies, he's off plotting to kill them, you know, as we're soon going to discover. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, before we see Smith again, though, I did like this one little scene where Penny is tucking Debbie in, into her bed. She is a got a little doll, even she's looking up to that beautiful night sky with all the stars, and she has this little line about, oh, this is beautiful sky. You look so beautiful up there, sky. But you'd look more beautiful if you were all dark with clouds and rain was falling and filling the lakes and rivers and the streams. Not until we find Dr. Smith, though. First, we have to find Dr. Smith, and they cut to, there's this large, large sand pile, and Smith is on top of it, and he's g- delivering these uh, this soliloquy uh, worthy of Hamlet. I have plotted their end as they plotted mine. My time is short, but this you must know and judge. I have plotted their end as they plotted mine. Only theirs will be more lingering than mine. These are the last mortal words of one who, had he survived, would have 
transfigured the universe. Signed, Zachary Smith. He's recording these, this in a tape, right? <laughs> these are the last mortal words of the one who, had he survived, would have transfigured the universe. <laughs> Signed, Zachary Smith. <laughs> now, transfigured the universe, you know, I talk about grandiose. Yeah. I mean, these are clearly, Zachary basically thinks he was even greater than the president. He's yeah. going to be... You know, the guy who could have changed the universe yeah. if he had only lived. Uh, delusions of grandeur, for sure. So <laughs> that ends the that act, and we move on to Act 3, and we're back at the Jupiter 2, and the, the men are organizing yet another search party for Smith, and John leaves strict instructions that the girls are supposed to keep a watch on that culture and report if anything changes. And at the last minute, Don notices that their one remaining fuel cell in the water conversion unit is missing, and of course... We have to expect that Smith has it. Yep, the Smith alarm is going off again. It is, and Don says this would be a great time to start pray, praying for rain as if they weren't already, so... Uh, yeah, let's take out that Bible and get the family together, you know, on their knees again, like they did in that earlier episode. But uh, they're too uh, much in a hurry to do that right now. they got to mm-hmm. go find Smith. Yeah, they're spending a lot of energy looking for them, but we see Smith next, and he's out, and he's back around, and he's starting to stumble through the night in a forest of gorge trees, and you'll notice that all those trees are taller than him. They look like they're at least six or seven feet tall. He collapses in the sand, and of course, this is a setup for the next scene, because we're seeing this, the size of Smith and the size of these trees, and the next but morning... it definitely conveys just how dry it is, though. I mean, it does. They're scorched. These things all look like, they look like, you know, the roots coming up out of the ground because there there's not a leap to be seen right and when we come back the next morning that searing sun is bearing down on john don and will they've been searching through the night and they stop to take a water break don is the only one who hasn't started feeling sorry for smith he even big surprise (laughs) exactly he even refuses his water ration because he says he wants to stay steamed at smith (laughs) until they find him which i thought was pretty funny yeah and he makes some disparaging mark though and and will says you know that's kind of cruel don and he says oh really what do you think stealing our our last good fuel cell was brotherly love (laughs) it's got a point there john calls back to the ship and asks marine to take a look at that culture and she says well there's some bacteria and is it clumping well no it's not clumping yet oh that's a good sign apparently so so far so good yeah i'm wondering you know if john's as much of an expert in medicine as he was in uh, direction and you know interpreting what was it, 210 degree bearing from a 300 degree bearing? I'm not so sure I trust his judgment on these, especially when he starts throwing that scientific mumbo jumbo around. Yeah, yeah we don't want that. We don't want that bacteria clumping. <laughs> it's, it, it's separate, but not clumping. I don't even know what clumping bacteria looks like, but apparently he does. Yeah, well, it's, it must be bad. If it clumps, it's not good. So no clumping allowed. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the boys get back on the trail looking for Smith, and we cut back to the Jupiter Two lab. And uh-oh, now... It's clumping. It's, it's clumping. clumping. Yes, it's clumping. <laughs> and, oh, this is just what we didn't want to see. And Penny all of a sudden decides, oh, I better go check on Debbie. So she runs back upstairs, and we get that first look at supersized Debbie. <laughs> He's, 
he's jumping up and down, and they say, well, he looks scary, but at least he's friendly. And it makes me think, you know, maybe that's how those Cyclops got so big. Maybe they just eat space papayas all the time. But uh, yeah, Judy puts it together. She says to, to Maureen, she goes, wow, if that fruit made Debbie grow this big, what what do you suppose has happened to Dr. Smith? And, and Maureen goes, now, dear, let's not jump to any conclusions. And <laughs> then we get a great line from Maureen. Penny asks, oh, maybe we should contact uh, Dad and inform him of what's happened. Oh, no, he's got enough to worry about right now. So let's don't possibly warn him that he might run into a giant Dr. Smith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, we would want to, we would want to, you know, forewarned is not forearmed on this planet. Let's just keep it our little secret. Yeah. <laughs> She's finally stopped deciding to check with John on a, every minor event in the one case where she probably should check, check in with him. Did you like the ape guy, though? Did you think that that performance was okay? You know, uh, for some reason, when I saw that, it really brought back memories of 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know, the opening shots with that. Because not only did the ape kind of look like that, but he also acted a lot like that, except in this case, he's he's basically throwing the little Debbie's little uh, dolly around instead of a giant bone. Right. But, right. Uh, you yeah. know, when you said he was in these other movies, I was I was tempted to say, was he also in two thousand and one? Could have been. I don't know. I didn't I didn't check all the credits, but yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, it's definitely jarring because Debbie is such a cute little, and she's really even kind of small for a chimp, and then uh, the big. Debbie version was quite large. I mean, he's almost a full-grown man, so I thought... Well, that. yeah, you're, you're reminded, you know, how trusting they are of this animal. I don't know if you caught that story about a year ago where somebody had a chimpanzee and it, it went off on its master and it terribly mauled her and they had to shoot the chimpanzee. This is a regular-sized chimpanzee, okay? And now they've got this alien ape that is now the size of a, you know, gorilla, You'd think they'd be horrified and frightened of it, but, you know, oh, well, he's still friendly. Oh, really? Well, I, I hope you don't let it inside the spaceship to test that theory. I agree. Um, next we cut, and the boys discover Smith's little time capsule on top of the sand pile there. Don digs up the tape. He's like, I wonder what this is. And he, uh, No fuel cell, though. He put it in a film canister. We didn't mention that, but he, he took this reel-to-reel tape. Now, you know, we're all sitting here laughing watching this thing because if there's— you know, reel-to-reel tapes went the way of 8-track tapes. You know, by the 1970s, 1980s, they were gone. But apparently by 1997, they make a dramatic comeback mm. because Smith makes it on a reel-to-reel tape, and then he buries it in a film canister. They decide, you're probably wondering, well, why would they dig in the sand? Well, they're actually looking for, you know, maybe he's buried there because it's got his, his stake up there. But Don calls it. He says, well, not unless he's figured out a way to de- bury himself after he died. Mm. <laughs> but they are curious. They see its mark, so they dig through there, and they find the film canister. Yeah, and he says, he w- I wonder what he's got on this. And, and uh, Don says something like, it's probably some, some instructions to send us off on some wild goose chase. In the meantime, they still need that fuel cell. But we cut back now to see Dr. Smith. And we see that all those tall trees that he was in, it's it's daylight, he wakes up, he stands up, and he says, I'm alive, I'm alive. And we hear his booming voice, and those tall, seven-foot-tall trees now just look like mere scorched bushes next to him. So that's giving us a sense of the scale, that he's grown large. And I do buy it. That That was pretty convincing at that point. Yeah, and I think they have kind of a little echo on his voice, too, a reverb, you know, that really give this 
gargantuan sound to it. Now, I don't know about you, but I was disappointed that later on we never do get to see the family play those tapes back. I, that would have been a priceless. <laughs> I would have loved to see their reaction as he's basically saying, I'm going to kill them all, slow and lingering. But alas, you can't include it all in the episode, uh, I guess. No, they can't. But uh, hopefully that that's somewhere in the archives uh, for future generations. So Let us hope. Yeah. The boys round a large rock and they look up and there he is, supersized Smith, hand on hips. That's that adds to the effect. And he booms, stand there where you are. And like you said, the voice has some reverb on it. And for some reason, he doesn't seem to realize that he's a giant. This was one thing I thought was a little out of character for Dr. Smith, because he he immediately upon seeing them with, with no warning at all, he just picks up one of those bushes or tree, in fact, and he throws them at throws that tree at them. And I've never seen him be, except for that judo chop in episode one, I've never seen him be violent before, but maybe the poisons had an effect on his temperament as well. Well, you see the the opening shot when they discover Smith, it's actually, it's a split screen and the split is a tree. So there's a tree going up there and Smith is three times their size, maybe four times their size on the left. And then the group is there on the right. Now, the part that they don't get right is that Smith's eye lines are not looking down at them. His eye lines are pretty much looking straight across, you know, which is way above their heads. But when he throws that tree, you're going to cut to kind of a Smith's point of view of the group, and this tree is going to come crashing down on them or near them. And that's where if you weren't hit over the head just at how large he is to begin with, this certainly emphasizes it because he picked up that that tree with his hand and it was about the size of his hand and now he throws the tree down at them and this tree is bigger than they are right yeah it just seemed out of character for him i haven't seen him act that that violently but he does yeah that. but i mean june does make that remark you know that she doesn't he i don't think he realizes what his size is and i kind of got from that that maybe you know this this fruit has also sort of affected his reasoning skills and may yeah. have affected you know the other things that the way he normally thinks yeah yeah, well, definitely, yeah, that prob- that's a possibility there. So at this point, John thinks, you know, maybe I better check in with Maureen and see th- how things are going with that culture. And Maureen spills the beans with John that Debbie has grown up, too. So Yeah, know. I don't know if this would be of any interest to you, but the, the little chimpanzee is now, you know, planted the ape size. But, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, did I forget to mention that to you? I didn't want to bother you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's going to get kicked off of Twitter for mentioning that. As it is, it's a little bit uh, late on the delivery, and John doesn't seem that upset that no. he wasn't told. No, he doesn't seem that upset. We cut back to Smith, and Smith is standing up there, and I love this bit. He goes, you know, I am Dr. Zachary Smith. I am Zachary Smith. Dr. Zachary Smith at us with another tree we'll all be pulp you can't shoot him there may not be another choice will but he may be hungry as well as thirsty that's why he's so mad shall i offer him something to eat he's more likely to eat you than that sandwich dr smith and i are friends let me talk to him all right will but keep your distance try and persuade him to come back with us tell him we want to help him and remember this son i'll have my laser on him at all times go Dr. Smith, I brought you something to eat, a sandwich. Sandwich? That's birdseed. What are you doing standing down there in that ditch? Come on up. I'm not in a ditch. I'm on the same level you are. Is this another of your Robinson games? Come up out of there. Listen, Dr. Smith, you know that fruit you ate? Well, it did sort of have an effect on you. 
Only temporarily. I feel fit as a fiddle now. I'm glad of that, but... But, but, but what? Speak up, boy. What's happened to your voice? That fruit you ate, it made you grow. Grow? Yes, sir. You're as big as all these trees. What trees? These bushes, do you mean? They're trees, Dr. Smith. They're really trees. That can't be. It's an optical illusion. That infernal sun up there, it does things to your vision. I don't think so, Dr. Smith. Made me grow, did you say? Tall as a tree? Can't be. It isn't true. Oh, tell me it isn't true. Tell me it isn't true! Gosh, it's not so bad being big. Think of all the marvelous things you'll be able to do. My gosh, you'll be able to get bird's eggs without even climbing. What's so marvelous about that? It's not marvelous to be three times as tall as anyone else. It's horrifying. Oh, I'll never be able to go back to Earth now. They'll laugh at me. They'll put me in a circus sideshow with the freaks. <laughs> And when Dr. Smith finally accepts the fact that he's grown three times as large as a man, he completely changes character. And this was the part that I kind of had a problem with. The, and I just felt like he turns into this whimpering, whining, sneezing mess. I, I realized he was going to be upset, but it just seemed like he was so totally laid way by this that I it took me out of it for a little bit. Well, you know, I mean, he makes some good points. He says he, might as, he can never go back to Earth now. I mean, and when you think about it, that's true because he's not going to be able to fit in the ship, you know, but he says he might as well go join the circus as a freak show, you know, mm. talk about there, there probably isn't anything that would ostracize you from the rest of humanity as much as being turned into a giant, you know, yeah, you can have leprosy, you can look like that monster that they did the movie with Cher, you know, and he was terrible, but then everybody loved him, you know, Elephant Man, that was another movie, you know, all these movies, they all come to accept somebody, no matter how hideous they are, but if you're four or five times the size of a human, the chances are, you know, you're never going to, you're certain, if, if Hawkins can find a mate, you'd think anybody could find a mate, but no, you know, a giant that size, you're never going to find a mate. Sorry. Mm. Yeah. Well, Will tries to tell him, though, it's not all that bad. He'll be able to get eggs out of nests without cl climbing trees, but that doesn't seem to soothe Smith at all. After he's basically changed his whole demeanor, he's not throwing trees at them, John and Don feel like it's safe to come out and join Will. They start talking to Smith, and they try to convince him to come back to the ship with him, and then they let it slip out. Oh, by the way, we really need that fuel cell, and Smith hears that. He snaps out of his funk instantly and turns nasty again. He says, ah, that's why you're out here, eh? And he dries them off with sneezes and threats of crushing them like little bugs under his feet. Now, did you notice the interesting point of view that they do doing this? They start shooting from between Smith's boots. Yes. You know, and, and of course, uh, you know, the obvious question is, okay, so you ate the fruit and okay. you grew. It's a little bit of a fantastic premise, but I'm buying it. I mean, you are, after all, on a fantastic planet. But... Explain to me again why the clothes also grew and the well, boots also grew. Well, I was going to ask you that very question. How did the, do you know how the writers explain that? No, do tell. They didn't. 
<laughs> well, it was a great shot, though, because you're looking in between the boots, and he stops his boots, and of course, uh, you know, you hear like the thunder of the, the, the boots shaking the earth, and the cameras shake and stuff <laughs> like that, and of course, the people in the background are shaking. So it's kind of a fun way. I was curious if did the book say that, you know, I, I bet you it wasn't Jonathan Harris wearing the boots. Did they use bigger boots? Did they do, you know? Yeah, they said it was all it was all like a forced perspective shot. In fact, there's another shot they talked about. They said where you're looking over Smith's shoulder, looking down, they actually put him on a platform that was about 20 feet tall and put the camera up behind him and then shot over his shoulder and the, and the other guys were standing down below. And they did the same kind of shot later on with June. And it's just basically, you might know more about this than I do, but there's a certain kind of lens that can more or less maintain focus at you know wide focal lengths and not have everything out of focus yeah it's the same sort of gimmick too that you do when you're over at the leaning tower of pisa and you know you're in the foreground and you're you hold your hand up there against the the Mm. distant background of the the tower and it looks like you're leaning against it but you can't be too close to the camera but you know back in the day in the 60s and 70s we all had these instamatics which had these wide angle lens which allowed us to do that sort of thing yeah. So that that works real. Yeah, it real it works well. good. He's basically in a tantrum at this point. And as we go to commercial, the uh, boys have to run away, and Doctor Smith is left there, very frustrated. Before we start the next act, let's pause right now for a word from our sponsor. There are diamonds, and then there's a Zachary diamond, a diamond so rare and beautiful it might make you risk the lives of your friends. A diamond so brilliant you can see it in a hidden cave with no light at all. A diamond that's worthy of the one who can transfigure the universe. A diamond so extraordinary it takes an entire bundle of charges to blast it from its hiding place. A diamond so prestigious it's been called the Doctor of Gemstones. A diamond that belongs only in the hand of one who can truly understand its value. The hands of Zachary Diamonds take extra pride to select, cut, and polish these stones so it sparkles, scintillates, and disperses light like no other. Hand-mined, hand-selected, hand-cut, and hand-polished. And only then is it deserving to be called a Zachary Diamond. When we come back, we now return back to the Jupiter 2, and the boys are back at the ship, and they're having a little powwow with the girls, trying to decide what to do next. They want to help Smith, but they know that if they don't get that fuel cell back fast, they're all going to die. And so they talk a little bit. I thought this was kind of interesting. They talk about the sneezing, and they say, well, Debbie's been sneezing too. And John makes this line. He says something to the effect of, well, you know, Smith, the doctor, knows more about the action of that fruit on the pituitary gland than any of us. But Smith, the victim is in a state of shock so he couldn't help himself even if he wanted to so i guess that's that's how they're explaining the fact that he's acting to to my mind just a little bit uncharacteristically pitiful but even though smith is to blame for his condition you do feel some sympathy for him at least i did sure and uh, i did like that little throwaway line too because they're acknowledging again that he's a doctor and you know we kind of forget about that even though he 
whips out this stethoscope and looks down his own throat or whatnot. You know, sometimes John just kind of seems like an expert in everything, so to see him tip his hat to anybody as being smarter than him is a little uncharacteristic, but I thought it was kind of modest and enjoyed it. Yeah, it did. Well, Maureen is back to asking permission. Maybe she got chastised by John for not checking with him about the clumping bacteria. She says, can I go and try to reach Smith using a a different tack? And he says something like, well, I don't think you can reason with him. And she says, well, I don't intend to. She's got a different trick up her sleeve. She's going to start flattering his ego. And and John seems kind of uh, amused by this. And he says, yeah, well, go ahead and try. Yeah. So we're we're all kind of curious. What what's she gonna do? Yeah. Well, she shows up back there and she starts working. Doctor Smith, right. may I join you? Yee-choo! Oh, Doctor Smith, I was beginning to get very worried about you. I'm awfully glad we found you. Yes, I know. To laugh at me, to poke fun at the freak. I thought you were above that, Mrs. Robinson. Oh, but no one's laughing at you, Dr. Smith, least of all me. But you're staring. That's just as bad. But that's not true at all. You're still the same person you always were. You don't know what it's like to be a giant. No bed big enough. Well, we'll build you one. No chair. We'll make one of those, too. No one to talk to face to face, unless I squat. Well, you're talking to me. Dr. Smith, I think there's something you should know. You're really a very brave man. Huh? Well, you could say that when you ate that fruit, you performed the same kind of of heroic act that men of medicine are remembered for. You risked your life the way they risked theirs, for the benefit of others. Come to think of it, I suppose I did. Of course you did. And we're very, very proud of you. Now, we want you to come back to the ship with us. Please. Pauses for a second and says, you know, come to think of it, you're right. And... (laughs) That that seems to do the trick, because he agrees to come back with her to the ship, and he even offers up, well, I suppose I should give you that fuel cell, shouldn't I? Yeah, and of course, uh, well, that would be helpful, y- you think? Yeah. <laughs> oh, one of the things I thought was pretty funny, and this there's a payoff for this, he goes, well, uh, what's the point of me coming back? There's no bed big enough. She's like, well, we'll build you one. No chair large enough. We'll build you one of those, too. And sure enough, when they do get back to the ship that night, we see, we don't really see Dr. Smith, but they've built him this Paul Bunyan-sized bed with uh, every army blanket in their storage is uh, covering him. It's just sort of a, I guess, a dummy or something. And they even put a canopy over the top of it so that was thoughtful of them and he's he's over there we can hear his voice and he's calling for will oh, my feet are cold will certainly sir i'll cover those feet and then uh, we have a, another little change in the weather at this point even though the fuel cell is fixed all of a sudden we hear the sounds of lightning on the horizon so i guess god heard those prayers even though they didn't assume the position and do a family reading of the Bible like they did in that earlier episode. Because we get a a lot of lightning, and, you know, they're all cheering as the rains open up. It wasn't quite, you know, as dramatic as the final scene of Dune or anything, but we're all happy to see it happen. Yeah, and then they show Dr. Smith, and he's this large, you know, I guess inflated dummy or something. As the water is raining down on him, the the deflation starts to go out of him, and finally it shrinks down to the point, and they cut away, and Dr. Smith 
pulls the covers back, and he's back to his normal size. Yeah, he, yeah it must have been very hot water, you know, from that, <laughs> all, because it also shrank his clothes. Yeah. <laughs> which now fit him perfectly again. Those magical clothes. And Debbie's back to normal size, too. And he picks up little Debbie. And this is kind of interesting because it's a little side note I wanted to mention. In the book, they talked about Jonathan Harris was actually afraid of Debbie. He was always afraid that she was going to bite him or something like that. Or and, gouge his eyeballs out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and <laughs> Not and, that a chimpanzee would ever do such a thing. Well, some some of the other actors said he was just a, he just didn't want to be upstaged by an animal. But anyway, he did agree to do the scene in this case. He's pretty nice with her, if you notice. He picks her up. He picks up the little doll and carries her in, and they walk inside the spaceship all soaked to the bone. As they walk in, they're like, Dr. Smith, you're back to normal size. And it's all well that ends well. And Dr. Smith is like, of course I am. Are you all mad? Here you are, dancing like savages while I'm being drenched. But Dr. Smith, do you realize what's happened? Of course I realize what's happened. But I'm still being drenched and I'll probably get pneumonia. (gasps) But you're back to normal size. That's what's important. Obviously, the effect of simple H2O on my system. However, as soon as one of you good people gets me a cup of hot soup, and something dried to wear, I might offer up a small prayer of thanks. And they all laugh, you know, like in a very Brady Bunch-esque ending, you know, you know, it just he's a little too... I canned at that point, but you know, yeah, that's it, what kind of makes it funny, I guess. It, it was funny. It was kind of like a quick, you know. All right, let's wrap this up. Work, 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 work. All's well that ends well. So, uh, it was, uh, you know. Well, I'll let let you go first. What was? What's your final verdict on the Oasis? Well, I thought it was entertaining, and I enjoyed watching it. But I have to have a very big asterisk. You could even call it a giant asterisk, mm. and that would be I really have no interest in watching it again. You know, so it's 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 something you don't want to miss, but you're not going to be craving seeing it. You know, more than once, like some of our favorite episodes. In yeah. my personal opinion, yeah, I'll go along with that. Uh, I like the first half better than the second half, and you like the second half more. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, the the thing that I liked about I, what I loved about the first half was the you know, evil Dr. Smith elements and watching him, you know, uh, do all these things in his mind and the, the dialogue that he has with himself, the monologues, the soliloquies. And of course, you know, the, the drama that he, he builds around (laughs) himself or he's going to transfigure the universe if Mm. only he had lived longer. But what I liked about the second part, even though the growing gargantuan with the clothes and everything was a little bit fakey and everything. I mean, from the standpoint of like, well, if you're going to grow, at least, you know, what, what do we expect? I mean, was he going to be holding a wad of clothes and, uh, over his midsection? I mean, they no, couldn't have done no, it. So, no, we've, we already s- we've already seen enough of Dr. Smith without his clothes on in this episode. Uh, yeah. So uh, be that, you know, once you accept that they had to do that, uh, what was interesting about it was the sympathy that you started to feel for him. I mean, I did. I Maybe... I'm just, uh, I like him too much, but it, 
I did feel kind of sorry for him. And, and it just made me think, you know, how isolated somebody would be if something like that were to occur to them. Even though it, you know, wasn't hard to accept it as being real, it, it, it's sort of like an episode about somebody having cancer. It doesn't matter whether, you know, that looks like the real cancer on the x-ray or whatever. It's very, uh, you have to have empathy for anybody who has cancer. And, I mean, this was the end of the road for Dr. Smith. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. I, I felt sympathy for him too, and I guess this is what we have to get our mind around. This, to me, this was like a turning point episode for the series already. I mean, this is episode nine, and I just felt like the the level of seriousness, even though we've seen comedy from Doctor Smith before, and I do enjoy it, the level of seriousness on that second half with them turning giant and everything just seemed to take me out of it a little bit. Now. Another thing to mention about this, just coincidentally, was at the time this was being done, Irwin Allen was already sort of planning on doing the the Land of the Giants, and he wanted to have an episode featuring this sort of scenario so that he could sort of test out some of the filming techniques, and he called this like a dry run for Land of the Giants, which he would get to in a couple of years. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to know because... You know, if he had done this later on after Land of the Giants, everybody would have said, oh, you know, this again. He's just copying this from Land of the Giants. But by doing this early, nobody's going to make that connection. And it would, they brought, you know, you knew that Smith was loving this. And you knew that the audience, this is probably like them floating around in space. This was like a great special effect at that time. There'd right. only been a handful of movies that did something like that, like the amazing Colossal Man and, you know, a hand. There was one other uh, movie, too, that featured a giant by the same director, uh, horror films, of course. But in general, you know, this is you didn't see this too often. So it was a big thrill. Now, it was also fun listening to you talk about they had Jonathan Harris up on the scaffold doing this. I mean, this is one of the neat things about the 1960s. The actors were still extremely humble. You know, they they didn't even, it doesn't sound like they even had very many stand-ins. You know, I would have said, you know, put my stand-in up there. I'm, I'm not climbing up that scaffold if I fall. The entire show is over. You know, <laughs> he was still doing that. I mean, uh, and then you hear things like the cast from Gilligan Island didn't even get any royalties. <laughs> <You know? laughs> These guys are just so much more humble and it's so much better and you have to like these people for rolling up their sleeves and doing these things and spending so much time and effort and they weren't getting the one million dollars an episode that friends was getting or whatever so it's just wow gone are the days gone are those days that's good well before we uh call it quits for tonight uh, the last shots of this episode are setting us up for the next one with the the teaser so um, we'll go into this in more detail next time but i just want to briefly mention it we we cut back to a a shot of dr smith and he's napping up against a rock with the robot at his side judy drops by to remind him that he's supposed to be doing some work and he he perks up and explains oh i'm i am working my dear and she sits down beside him and says well what work are you doing uh Doing what they told us to do at the end of the thing. Watch the skies. <laughs> yes. Looking for our rescue ships. And then she kind of gets serious and says, well, there's never going to be any rescue ships here. She's kind of a Debbie Downer at that point mm-hmm. and uh, predicts uh, they're not going to be getting off this rock with the help of anybody else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she flashes those beautiful eyes at the camera and you're reminded just how exceptionally beautiful this woman is. I mean, she's got these 
gorgeous, even though they're black and white, you're sitting there going, wow, I could just drown in those eyes. And you're reminded that she was a model, not just an actress, but a, a, a pretty successful model. Uh, she's still she's still quite nice looking today. She's a still an attractive woman. But uh, she says she's going to leave Dr. Smith to his, quote, work. And uh, she scampers off, and Dr. Smith tries to go back to sleep, and the robot perks up. He says, approach of alien object. And oh, Smith- shush. <laughs> I'm trying to relax here. <laughs> and finally, Dr. Smith, we hear this We hear this mechanical sound, uh, beeping and clinking and clanking, and Dr. Smith's eyes come up, and he sort of gets an expression on his face of alarm, and we see this this small little crab-like droid heading towards him, and it's, it's closing in, and before we can find out what happens, the frame freezes, and the words come in to remind us, uh, you'll have to tune in next week, kids, to find out what happens as we go to end credits for The Oasis. Again, a, a pretty cool effect for the 1960s. This is long before Robot Wars or any of the Star Wars or, you know, where they had the contest where kids built these ro- uh, robots to fight each other. And here you have it, you know, clanking around. And it's got all these cool, you know, it's got a claw. It's got like a giant spur. It looks like it's one of these battle droids. Yeah, and it's 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 very otherworldly looking, you know. I mean, it's small, but it's it looks threatening with the claw and everything, doesn't it? I got to give a shout out to a little preview. I got to enjoy uh, what it's upcoming interview that you did with Mark Cushman, who, of course, did the books that you read about. He really touches uh, on something that is very relevant to this episode. And he talks about how uh, Irwin Allen decided with the coaching of the networks that they needed to have a, a villain, you know, within the family unit uh, to create the conflict. And, what his eureka moment was not just a villain, but you needed someone like Long John Silver from Treasure Island that mm-hmm. would be someone that you could like. And when I heard that, you know, Long John Silver and his parrot, and that's where basically Dr. Smith and the robot came from, it mm-hmm. was like, wow, that's exactly what they're doing. And this episode really brings that to the forefront because. They're they're all being sympathetic towards him. They're all missing him before he's actually dead. And you're realizing, you know, he is like Long John Silver. He's a villain, and yet he's the guy that the kid likes the most. And he's a bad guy, but he's also at times a good guy. And he's a friend to the to Will or the other kid in Treasure Island. So, you know, it's a it's a very interesting parallel. And once again, Erwin Allen, the master thief of all things, you know, recycled. He's reaching back to someone else's idea, but he's synthesizing it in his own idea and does a good job at that. He really does. It definitely works here. And as you, I think you mentioned this before, we talk about how the pilot, it's just hard to imagine this show going on for three seasons without Dr. Smith and the robot. It really is that, it's that magic sauce that makes the whole thing work. So... That's and we'll very... get to look forward to that Mark Cushman interview later on. It really was a joy to behold. So uh, you haven't missed it if you haven't heard it yet. It's it's coming. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for that. And folks, uh, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the tenth episode of Lost in Space, titled "The Sky Is Falling." And I'm really looking forward to this one. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night.
Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.